Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. We did a survey of the staff to see how the shift to a four-day work week had kind of impacted their well-being, and it was really just a resounding success across the board. So, you know, with that data, we decided to just kind of let it ride. The 24-hour news cycle makes it difficult for a reporter or editor to have anything resembling a reasonable work-life balance. As many journalists reassess the demands they operate under, some newsrooms have begun to explore the idea of a four-day work week. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. We get pitched a lot of guests, and when someone said they knew a journalist who was shaking up the traditional news model and had adopted a four-day work week in their newsroom, I said, yes, please. Ashton Lattimore is the editor-in-chief of PRISM, a nonprofit independent newsroom led 100% by journalists of color. PRISM delivers in-depth, thought-provoking journalism. Ashton, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you for having me. So start off with, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what got you into journalism? How'd you end up at PRISM? I got into journalism as an undergraduate, actually. I was an opinion columnist on my campus. I had a lot of strong feelings about a lot of things. So that's how I ended up in journalism initially, just, you know, working my way from a columnist eventually to an editor at the the school newspaper. I attended journalism school after that and got my master's and then took a brief detour, actually, and went to law school and practiced law for about four four or five years before I realized, you know, ultimately that I wanted to return to the fold. That shift happened sort of in the aftermath of 2016 and everything that happened that year and just feeling sort of apart from current events. Like I really wanted to kind of come back to the fray and that's what journalism felt like for me. Uh, So when the um, managing editor position at PRISM opened up, I went for it and I got it and I uh, joined PRISM as managing editor in 2019 and took over as editor-in-chief in 2020. Yeah. She got back into journalism during interesting times, for sure. To say the least. <laughs> but, you know, you showed the spirit. You wanted to be in on the fight, which I think is a great thing to do. I know that we did have Tina Vasquez on our podcast back in 2020. She was a senior reporter at PRISM covering um, immigration issues. I think she's still there. I think I saw her story or her byline not too long ago. Yeah, she's a reporter at large. <laughs> His reporter at large. So anyway, you know, I I know a little bit about Prism. Just to sort of bring everybody up to speed, could you sort of describe Prism's mission? You know, how it's structured and what what you're doing. Sure. So Prism is an independent nonprofit newsroom. We're led by journalists of color. We focus on telling stories from the ground up, centering on communities most impacted by injustice and how those communities are working towards a better future. So our our journalism is pretty grassroots at its core. We cover a range of issues and we focus a lot on the intersections between them, really intentional focus on social movements. The intention is for the impact of our work to be informing movements for social justice, animating them and critical evaluating them, ultimately with the aim of of really shifting narratives about communities of color. In terms of what we cover, it really runs the gamut. We cover um, gender justice, workers' rights, economic justice, crime reform and abolition. We cover cover politics and democracy. So it's it's really wide ranging in scope and we're national. So we cover the entire United States and, and U.S. territories. I know some people would, would hear that, you know, what you're focused on and the types of stories that you're doing and, and would wonder if you're you're sort of an advocacy publication. But I think actually 
you know, you're just a journalism outlet that's recognizing that there are different stories to tell. Anyway, I shouldn't answer that question for you, but is that is that sort of along that line? That's exactly right. Yeah, we are fundamentally journalists at heart. Our work is rigorous and fact-based and, you know, carefully fact-checked. And it, it's not based in advocacy or our opinions or our feelings about anything. It's, it's journalism. We're reporting the news. But we do recognize fundamentally that there have been so many stories and so many communities that have been overlooked by much of the rest of the media. And if not overlooked, covered in ways that are harmful or inaccurate. So we're just being really intentional about the way that we, we focus our attention on communities of color in particular um, and other marginalized groups. Can you give me sort of an example maybe of a recent story or investigation that you might have done that kind of, you know, bears out this philosophy that your approach to journalism? Sure. So we had a, a recent story uh, just within the last month or so um, focused on California, telling the story of um, incarcerated firefighters, particularly formerly incarcerated firefighters, and looking at reforms that have been put in place, you know, after a lot of sort of grassroots organizing and effort and efforts by the legislature reforms that ensure that they can still access firefighting jobs after release. Because we know what happens in California is that many firefighters who are incarcerated, incarcerated people get trained on firefighting. And then while they're incarcerated, they also get sent out to fight wildfires in California. But once they're released, because they have records, either misdemeanors or felonies, they're often not able to access those same firefighting jobs that they were already doing while they were incarcerated. So this story looked at the legislative reforms behind that, the movement building that was behind the shift that's happening, that's now allowing uh, many of these people to have their records expunged and get training on the outside so that they can continue doing the work that they've learned how to do. And that story really exemplifies kind of our approach to journalism, partially because it's at the intersection of several different issues, right? It's a criminal justice story. It's a climate story. It's a workers' rights story. And because the folks who are incarcerated in California and really, you know, around the country are disproportionately uh, people of color, there's also an element of, of racial justice that's sort of infused there. And the other piece of it is that it's a solution story. We're putting really important context around how people are fighting to make something better for themselves and for their communities. And the people who are at the root of this issue, they're active, they have agency, and they're making an impact. You know, it's it's not all working out perfectly. There's still plenty of room left to grow and give more opportunities to formerly incarcerated firefighters. But um, it's a story that fundamentally kind of focuses on, on progress. And that's a lot of what we do at PRISM. It seems like somebody had a good idea. We should train these people who aren't going to be anywhere else to become firefighters because we have this real problem of uh, fires in, you know, wildfires in, in California. It's like you teach them the skill and then, but you don't, they didn't think of the other half of it is, well, how do you integrate them back into society so that they can utilize these skills? It's a great story to cover. Wow. I wish I had more stories like that to cover. But that's just me being lazy because I know there are stories like this all over that aren't being covered. You just have to look for them. Now, I said at the beginning, I was told you were shaking up the traditional model of a newsroom. What does that mean? You know, are you percentage working remotely? Do you, is it structured differently? You know, tell me what it is. Our structure is a bit different. So our we're 100% remote. We've actually been 100% remote since we were founded. So since 2019. So that's not a pandemic innovation. That's just something that we decided to do in part because we want journalists to live in the communities where they have roots, where they have families, where they want to be. We don't believe everybody has to live in New York or DC or San Francisco or LA or Chicago if you want to be a journalist. So we are a fully distributed, just kind of national team with, with folks all over. So that's one 
one of the ways that we're structured a little bit differently. The other piece of things I think is just who we are and, and how we report. I've talked a bit about kind of how we think about the stories that we want to tell. And so I think that's really what sets our work apart, that intentional focus on communities of color um, and that intentional narrative shifting in the way that we report. Otherwise, we're, we're sort of traditionally structured. You know, we have a newsroom divided into a news desk, which has sort of quicker turn stories that put the really big stories of the day, the really big national stories of the day into context for our audiences. And then we have our features desk, which has longer lead time, sort of longer form features that take a bit more time to put together. And of course we have, you know, opinion pieces that we accept from folks who pitch us and folks who have columns as well. But so just because I'm a nuts and bolts kind of guy, I like to hear how newsrooms work. How do you develop stories? I mean, you say that some people will pitch you opinion pieces or things, but are you relying on, you know, an immigration reporter or a prisons reporter or someone to identify stories? Or is this something that, that sort of is developed remotely in the newsroom? It's a mix. So several of our reporters have developed really strong areas of expertise. I mean, you mentioned Tina, who's fantastic. She's an incredible um, immigration reporter and also in the world of reproductive justice. Similarly, we have Tamar Sarai, who's an incredible criminal justice reporter, Ray Levy-Uyeda, who does our climate coverage for us, and Alexandra Martinez, who does largely workers' rights coverage and some gender justice coverage as well, but is also on our news desk. So Alexandra's work kind of covers the gamut. So our reporters are subject matter experts to a large extent. So they are very much the ones who are out kind of on the front lines reporting and bringing stories back to the editors to kind of proactively pitch them. Like, here's what's going on in the world. Here's how I think we should shape it. And then editors will work with with our reporters to decide, you know, what the story should look like, how long it should be, when we'll publish it within a given news cycle and so on. But we do really have um, an active freelance program as well. So we really welcome pitches from people who are seeing stories in their own communities, freelance journalists who are seeing things out in the world and think prison would be the right place for their story to reach the audiences that they're looking for. So it's really a mix of sort of top-down assignment and proactively pitched to us, either freelancer or from our, our staff reporters. Always when somebody mentions freelancing, I always want to know what makes a good prison pitch? What's a story that, you know, that you get that says, yeah, this is this is us, this is something that we need to cover? What makes a strong prison pitch, well, first of all, somebody showing that they've read our site, so they know the things that we that we report on. Do you um, know who we are? <laughs> yeah, something that's squarely within our areas of coverage is, is always going to be a good start. Something that's focused on communities of color, that's central to our work. So if it doesn't have that focus in some form or another, it's likely not going to be the story for us. But something that really focuses on how people in communities at the grassroots level how they're fighting for something and why they're fighting for it and what they're fighting for. That's frequently what our stories look like, which, you know, it may look different in the immigration context than it does in the workers' rights context. It may look different in the politics context, but fundamentally at our core, we are interested in how communities are exercising their agency to push for a better world and fight against injustice. So, so a pitch that captures that in some form or fashion is likely to, to be the right fit for us. In one of your answers, you were you mentioned solutions journalism, and it, it seems like in some of the things that you described, that that's just an element of the type of reporting you're doing. You know, what what form of you know solutions journalism does it take? Are you incorporating like local stakeholders? Are you you know identifying structures that need to be fixed to better serve a community, or is it you know is it really kind of whatever the story is? We we need to find it out. 
It's a mix, I would say. I would say it's a mix. So we do incorporate a fair bit of solutions journalism into our work. We actually have some support from the Solutions Journalism Network for some of our climate justice work and some of our labor work and previously some of our um, democracy coverage. So it is an intentional approach that we take to a lot of our stories, not all of them, because sometimes there is just a problem and somebody is not solving it, but it needs to be called out and brought to light. So we certainly are in the business of doing that as much as we're in the business of covering solutions. We really like to focus on um, community-led solutions, particularly. So we're more likely to cover something that is maybe community-based or maybe showing up in the form of like mutual aid or grassroots advocacy rather than sort of a top-down legislative solution. But we like to look at all of them because we're really interested in what's working um, in a lot of these spaces where you're seeing kind of creative approaches to addressing inequities or injustices. So it really it really runs a range. I wouldn't say we have like a one steadfast approach to, to solutions journalism. We're open to a few different interpretations. Right. And when you're developing a story, I imagine it's like, you know, what what do we want the next to be? That, you know, we do this reporting, we identify things. What is going to make sure that maybe this doesn't happen again? Or maybe that some sort of mitigating factor comes in and, and helps people, which is a good approach to journalism, I think. Who is your audience? You know, who are you writing for? Who is responding to the work that you're doing? So our primary audiences, largely communities of color um, and folks who want to see themselves and their their sort of big fights reflected in the news and people who want the crucial context to understand and get involved in some of these big issues that we're facing more than I could could name <laughs> probably in a few a few minutes. But I think it's those two kind of cohorts. So it's largely communities of color, but there are also other folks who are among our readers who who may not be from communities of color, but who are just deeply invested in how injustice is being addressed in the United States and are interested in looking at, at ways to fight against it. Age range-wise, it really runs the gamut. I think we lean a bit more heavily, what are they called? Gen Z? Are they are those the, I don't the, know. the youth? Um, <laughs> the Gen youth Z, of America. The youth today. of America, because we know that they're very politically active. They're very active in social movements and social justice. So so we, we do have a younger skewing audience, I would say, largely Gen Z, millennials and Gen X. But there are also plenty of folks who are from older generations than that, who are also deeply invested in the work that we're doing. I like the involvement of, of the younger generations because they tend, as you said, they tend to be more politically involved. They don't understand why there can't be a solution to something and uh, are willing to, you know, hold your feet to the fire if you're not, you know, doing something or covering a particular story. You're like, why aren't you reporting about this? Why are you wasting your time on this? So as I started off, I said that you guys have adopted a four-day work week. How did that come about? So it actually came about because of some reporting that we did. We published a story in May because there's been a movement really, I think, spurred to a large degree by the pandemic, just people really re-examining work culture and how work shows up in our lives. So there's been basically a global campaign for like a four-day work week and that's showing up in the UK and the United States and other places. And we did a story in May reporting on some of the successes um, that have shown up as more workplaces have adopted a four-day work week. And in the wake of that story, Caitlin Gaffin, who's our chief operating officer, came to me and said, hey, do we want to try this here at PRISM? And I said, okay. It's very much in keeping with our values. We really want to be a place where journalists, you know, especially journalists of color can do this work, which is often very heavy work given the subject matter, can do it without you know, losing every other piece of their lives to it without being ground into dust by it, which is often what happens just as a result of the kind of the the 24-hour news cycle. So we decided to give it a try. We we planned a 12-week pilot 
over the summer where we tried it out and evaluated during that time, we evaluated how our fundraising was going. We looked at our traffic and our audience goals and whether or not we were hitting them. We looked at our editorial output. Are we still putting out the number of stories that we we feel we need to put out to cover the issues that matter to us and our audience? And at the end, we did a survey of the staff to see how the shift to a four-day work week had kind of impacted their well-being. And it was really just a re- resounding success across the board. So you know, with that data, we decided to just um, kind of let it ride. So that's what we've adopted kind of permanently. You're doubling down on your reporting. This is the solution. Yes. <laughs> I love this. When I first worked for a digital news site, I was actually kind of surprised that there was no like coverage on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Because I used to be a community reporter. And it was like, oh, you got to go to the, the bake sale. Or you got to go to the you know, the 5K or whatever. But it's like, yeah, well, we don't generally don't do that. It's a, you know, it's a nine to five position. Maybe you cover some things in the evenings, but, you know, it was mostly like a regular week, work week. And then having worked in that model for a while, I began to say, okay, so really when you have the freedom to pretty much schedule your day, you can almost do anything and, you know, have a four day work week. Have you reaped the benefits of it? Do you think? I think we have. We've seen increased productivity, which is, you know, kind of surprising. But I think people, when they have their work time compressed in that way into four days, people are just more focused. And that's what actually people reported in the survey responses, that they were more focused for the time that they were at work because they knew there was less time available for it. People have been, you know, reaping sort of mental health and work-life balance benefits, myself included. I think we've, we've really seen that this can be a solution, um, at least for a certain kind of newsroom. You know, I know it's not necessarily going to work at, at CNN or, or MSNBC or someplace where you do have to have that 24-hour churn. There always has to be something on the TV if somebody turns it on. But for a place that, that has the luxury to take a slower, more measured approach to coverage, I think it is possible. And I, I hope to see more newsrooms explore it. It's really interesting. When I saw that you'd done that, it was sort of touched with something that was going on in my head. We had had an earlier guest, who I won't name, <laughs> who was really excited about getting back to the newsroom after uh, the pandemic. And I was like, really? Because there had been, you know, in D.C., I think it was the, what was it, the Washington, uh, the Washingtonian. Yeah. The staff said, no, we like working at home. And maybe we don't want to be at home. And then it was like, well, what's the justification for being in an office? And are we there just so that the boss can see that we're working? Isn't our work demonstration of how we're working? So, you know, my thinking was because I work for Patch and, you know, I sleep six inches from my desk. So this is my world. You know, that there's so many strengths about doing it, but it never occurred to me that, you know, that I would want to go back to central office. But then I began thinking about it when when I read something else that somebody was talking about, like mentorship. And for me, that's the only thing that I think I would be concerned about. You know, you would have to actually spend the effort. How do you mentor new reporters? How do you make sure that the, the team is still like functioning as a team? You know, because we have all these things like Slack and whatever that allow us to have instantaneous communication. What do you guys do to sort of maintain the, the sense of team and promote mentorship? 
Sure. So for mentorship, that's actually a large part of our editor-at-large's work, Tina Vasquez, who's a very senior, very experienced reporter. So she meets regularly with reporters in our newsroom just to talk with them about approaches to story development, approaches to reporting. So some of it is just intentionally setting time aside and building in structures, making it part of people's role to mentor one another. And as far as team building goes, of course, we have team meetings monthly where we kind of you know come together and discuss things. We also play games and do kind of fun stuff together. But some of the team building is actually on Slack. For example, right now, uh, we, we have a question of the day every day where it's just like, oh, you know, what's your favorite song? What's the best dish that you've eaten in the last like month? Just very simple kind of basic life stuff that I think you would otherwise get kind of at a water cooler, but we've built in those spaces on purpose in Slack. The other thing we have going on right now is a bracket, a Halloween bracket. We're collectively fighting over who's the best Halloween character. The Great Pumpkin just got eliminated the other day, so I'm, oh my I'm God. very upset about that. But, you know, we have stuff like that. We do things online together that are fun. And I think some of that is just generational. We're a relatively young staff, so a lot of us are kind of terminally online and, and we're born that way. So that interaction kind of is normal for us. And I think a lot of that sort of, you know, the mentorship, the boss has to see everybody to feel like that something's being accomplished and people are working. I think it's sort of an old way of thinking, you know, from the the similar or the previous structures of what a newsroom was, like a daily newsroom or whatever. Or, you know, obviously there are you know, places like TV and radio stations where you do kind of need to have an office that you can go to for production, et cetera. But, you know, it's one of the luxuries of being in the digital space is that you can basically design whatever you want to do. I meet over the phone once a, or once every other week with my boss and we talk and we get through a lot of things and I communicate with the other people who are in the, the teams that are near me. So there's ways to do it, I guess. I guess that's what we're saying. So anyway, we're kind of at an interesting point. I mean, you guys were founded in 2019. We're coming up on the midterms. We're recording this. In October, this will probably go up, you know, after after the world has changed. You know, what is it you think you're going to be focusing on? You did mention reproductive rights. So I imagine that's that's an issue that's risen in prominence. You know, what are the things that you think you're going to be working on the next year or so? As you said, reproductive rights and justice is a huge area of focus for us at this moment um, in light of what happened at the Supreme Court and just the Supreme Court generally watching a lot of the decisions that are coming down and expected to come down in the next year, you know, around things like affirmative action that are kind of squarely in our coverage wheelhouse. I think our biggest area of focus is really democracy itself, kind of the fight to save democracy. That's going to be an expanding area of coverage for us with focus on things like not just voting rights and sort of the things that you see kind of traditionally fall into democracy coverage, but really closely looking at misinformation and disinformation, anti-democratic forces and how they're showing up in kind of state level elections for office and so on. As we run up to after these midterms, we'll kind of see what happens. But I think sort of the big test that we really see coming is, is 2024. So really preparing ourselves coverage wise and preparing our audiences for what we need to be thinking about and where our eyes need to be as we, we come up to that election. You know, I've been, I've been a journalist for a while, and I never thought that the central story that we should be covering is the preservation of our democracy. That never occurred to me as, as an issue that was up for debate. But it is, apparently. <laughs> the things that we do just by action, the way we use the First Amendment, the way we, you know, report news and treat people fairly and, you know, all the things we take for advantage suddenly are that much more important. 
we're going to have plenty of things to cover. I think Prism's in a, in, in a great place. I think I like the fact that it's focusing on people who, whose stories are not being told, issues that maybe are not being told from a certain perspective, and just understanding that that democracy is important, I guess. Anyway, Ashton, thank you for coming on. It's all journalism. This was great. I encourage everybody to go check out Prism. If you, if you have not already, they do great work. And anyway, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's great. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.